I definitely noticed a couple of scenes where it was difficult, especially the key one you mentioned with Michael Payne. Uh, Kane. Michael uh, and, Payne. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a pain to listen to his Kane. No, okay, it, he was dying. <laughs> what is happening? Anyway, <laughs> dodge this. I am the Father. Oh. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 112 of the Movie Bite Podcast. We are going to talk about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, November the 11th, 2014. I am TJ, your host, and joining me today are two intrepid explorers determined to save the human race from extinction on a dying planet. We'll have to make sure they stay in time sync with us today. It is Joe Darnell and Chad Hopkins. How are you fine gentlemen today? Good evening, TJ. I have been waiting here for 23 years for this podcast. I just want to let you know that ahead of time. <laughs> what is wrong with you, sir? What were you doing down there on the planet? This is ridiculous. Well, I mean, it's only been a couple of hours. What are you talking about? It's only been a couple of hours for you since the episode 111, but it's been 23 years for me. <laughs> and Chad, <laughs> welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad to be back. And I've got to say, I think this is my first episode with that new theme. And I sort of just muted my microphone just now and jammed out getting psyched. <laughs> oh, wow. cool. Well, yeah, that's, so that's, I, I'm I'm pumped. That is why I, I try to play it uh, actually as we're recording. A lot of times I used to put it in in post, uh, as you might remember. But uh, it does help you really <laughs> get into the to the mood of the thing. So, uh, yeah, I try to. It's sort of it, like the introduction real. to the Back to the Future, only better. Uh, I don't. Hmm. I think Chad may have something to say about that. The, the, the say that again, Joe. I was coughing behind my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I can't say that the theme of the Movie Bite podcast is better than Back to the Future. But uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's good. I like it. <laughs> it's 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 basically uh, we we just uh, ripped it off of the Age of Ultron trailer. That's what it really is. Oh, uh, speaking of the speaking of the Age of Ultron trailer. Um, let me pull this up here. I hadn't planned on doing this, but it's like one of those things you got to do it. Um, oh yeah. Let's do this because that was a really funny thing. That was a good cookie. Uh, here it is. So there are no strings on me. <laughs> so that was from the latest honest trailer, um, for Maleficent. Uh, I didn't enjoy the trailer so much, but that was a, a fun little clip at the end. You know how he says the things at the end, um, that people will ask him to say, and they asked him to say, there are no strings on me. Uh, it was it was pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he I, I love his voice. He's got such a great voice. You know, it's not like your normal trailer voice, but it, it's so perfect. Um, yeah. And those sound bites at the ends of those uh, honest trailers are some of my favorite parts. There are no strings on me. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. He's really good at it. So, um yeah, that's going to be the new sound bite for your alarm clock in the morning, right, TJ? Yeah, terrify me when I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, guys, let's dive into some news here. And the first item on the docket uh, that I thought I would mention uh, for a couple of reasons, but uh, the main one being I'm a fan of Johnny Rockets, um, the the restaurant chain. Have either of you eaten at Johnny Rockets before? I have. Yeah, me too. A couple of times. Usually go to Steak and Shake instead because they have better milkshakes. Joe, Joe, you're fired. (laughs) Get out right now. All right. Packing up this microphone. I'm going home. Yes, just pack it up. You might as well. I mean, just just get out of here. Johnny Rockets is so far superior to, I mean, it's so superior to Steak and Shake. What is even going on here? (laughs) Honestly, I've only had a couple of their burgers and one of them was on a cruise ship. So that doesn't really count. Their burgers are um, fantastic. I only know of one better burger in the world than Johnny Rockets, than a good Johnny Rockets burger. I've never had a bad one, so I don't know. But um, th- yeah, they're just they're just. I, I love Johnny Rockets. I love the feel, the old timey feel, and it's it's, it's 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 not you know I'm not usually a nostalgic person, but I just I just like the way Johnny Rockets is. I don't know how else to explain it. Well, the news here is that Johnny Rockets, true to their their old timey kind of feel and theme, they're bringing back drive-in theaters, according to Angie Han over at Slash Film. Johnny Rockets, a chain restaurant who, uh, whose speciality is heaping nostalgia with a side of burgers, wants you to watch movies like it's 1959. The company has announced a partnership with USA Drive-Ins to open Johnny Rockets drive throughs with their drive-ins. Business Week reports USA Drive-Ins plans to open 200 drive-in theaters by 2018, many of which will have an accompanying Johnny Rockets drive through Moviegoers will be able to either walk up to the counter to get their food or have it delivered to them in their cars. No car hops on roller skates, though, notes Business Week. So I, I don't know what you guys would you for the nostalgia's sake would you go to see uh, one, a movie in, in a drive drive-in? Dude, what? I would totally do this. I have never been to the <laughs> drive-in before. You, like if I, if I could get the car hop, if I could get the whole experience, I, I might just get like a, a Cadillac for the experience. Okay, Chad, you're the youngest of us here. <laughs> have you been to a drive-in? I actually have. Okay, um, good, good. I was going to say, the, the, please don't tell me the world is just turned upside down here. No, I, I have been to one. Um, and, you know, actually the past four years living in uh, my college town, there was a drive-in theater less than 20 minutes away. Unfortunately, I never went to that one or saw a movie there at least. Um, but, Shame on you. Well, yeah, previously I had been at least once. It wasn't a great experience, but that was because the movies I watched were not very good. Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is I'm kind of torn about this because I do like Johnny Rockets, but I think of them as a really high quality establishment, actually. Uh, and drive through drive in theaters have not typically, in my experience, been that high quality. The part of the problem is I do live in a town that, that I live near a town that has one and it's really run down. And I went to see I made the mistake before long before I started Movie Bite of going to that uh, drive-in to see a movie, and it was a terrible experience. Um, I don't remember this experience as being quite so bad when I was a kid. We used to go to the drive-in that was close to us then, and it wasn't great, but it was better. Like Part of the problem with the drive-in locally is it's all over the radio frequency. They don't have any of the things that you put on the hang on the inside of your window like they used to have. Uh-huh. And it's, it's just fuzzy and staticky. Like, and sometimes you get bleed through, from, bleed through from other stations. It was really pathetic. Um, so yeah, I just, that was the one and only time I went to the drive through in our local one and I'm not excited about it, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because I mean, not just in jest, I'm serious. Like I've always wanted to have that experience more than never like riding a roller coaster, but there are just weren't any around here growing up. Mm. And the, the main problem is, is that I don't know if y'all can relate to this, but Georgia is a really, really hilly country and there are trees everywhere. I can totally relate. We're the same way here in Nashville. So, yeah, I mean, like, if there's a clearing, it's because a lake is in the way. 
So <laughs> okay, I just googled uh, drive-in theaters in Nashville. I got a Watertown, Tennessee. Where is that? Stardust Drive-in Theater, Watertown, Tennessee. So if I can find one, I'll invite you up to to come and and uh, mm. let's see Wikipedia. Craziness. Will uh, so it's in Wilson County, so it has to be close. As uh, long as it's not a you know country rock song, you know like concert, please no. Let's I, see. I know I know what y'all do up in there in the t- Tennessee country, so. Oh, it's way over east. It's uh, it's way past Lebanon, so it's a good hour and a half away from here. I, and I'm on the I'm on the west, uh, west side of Nashville, so mm. it's only about Lebanon. 45 minutes from ne- the heart of Nashville. That's in the Bible. Uh, Lebanon? Yeah, it is, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah. So um, I hope they put one in near you, Joe, so you can have this experience. And and the thing is, like, maybe it'll be a better experience than what I'm used to, and maybe it'll be fun and nostalgic. I can't see doing it all the time. I certainly wouldn't see a movie like Interstellar at a drive-in no. theater. Uh, Interstellar deserves. I, I saw it in the Big D, and it deserves a Big D. I, I kind of wanted to see it in IMAX, but I didn't want to spend the money, or and or and the show times are all different and not suitable for me. So Big D yeah. was fine. But anyway. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys ever have any car mics around there that have big D, but it's it's not IMAX, but it's better than your average screen. So we don't have the car mic with big D, but we do have another chain that I really like more called NCG that has called what it's what they call Extreme, mm. and uh, it's it's the same comparable as experience. It's it's, it's really nice. Does it high- uh, that's actually where I saw Interstellar. Does it have high back leather, leather seats, Joe? Answer me that. Does it have high back leather seats? Yes, they're okay. freaking rocking chairs. I okay, mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful, man. Okay, well, cool. So that's the Johnny Rockets news. Uh, either of you two have anything more to add to that? Uh, no, not really. I'm just nope. um, happy to know that cinema is going places. All right. Well, this is something, Chad. I think you and I used to talk about a little bit. Uh, was the born stuff? I know. I, I feel yeah. like we've talked about it before. And I, I've never been a fan of the Aaron Cross thing. I mean, I've basically just crossed him right off my list. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> I really, really, um, you know, they kept, there kept being rumors about more Aaron Cross born, born without born. Uh, and, uh, I wasn't excited about this, but now we have confirmation from, uh, Matt Damon finally there. And the rumor of this has been going around, excuse me. Um, and so this is uh, Matt Damon confirms return to Bourne franchise with Paul Greengrass, uh, who directed the the latter latter two installments of Bourne proper. Uh, he says yes next year. Damon responded to E News when asked for clarification. It'll be in 2016 when the movie will actually come out. Director Paul Greengrass is going to do another one, and that's all I ever said. I just needed him to say yes. Uh, awesome. So I'm sure you guys are excited about this, right? I am. You know. Um- I really like the original Bourne trilogy. Did not like the uh, Jeremy Renner one at all. Mm, yeah, the, the music was okay, I guess, but you know, music doesn't make the film. Um, and Paul Greengrass is really talented. I, I liked his Bourne movies, and I actually really liked Captain Phillips as well. So I know he's capable. And knowing that Matt Damon, uh, who was part of what made the original trilogy so great, is coming back, that that's just really exciting news for me. Yeah, Captain Phillips was uh, Captain Phillips was certainly phenomenal. I I completely agree. I wasn't as keen with Paul Greengrass's first installment, which would be the second in the franchise. Oh no! Um, but he did really good at the third one. Um, my only concern here is I felt like they tied it up and put a bow on it with the third one, and that's why I was even disgusted that they ever even came out with the fourth one, which didn't star Matt Damon at all. Um, So, I don't know. It it, it may be fine, and it probably will be, because Matt Damon's a talented guy, Paul Greengrass is a talented guy, and I'm sure they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't feel like they had a story to tell. 
So and yeah. add the Born Identity to one of the movies, the classic movies that we will never get around to that I would awfully love to review. We should do it sometime, but we're so we're behind, like we're barely be keeping caught up with movies that are coming out right now. Yeah, one of these TJ, uh, one of these days, TJ, when like uh, they stop making movies altogether and there's a strike and the entire film <laughs> right. industry goes on strike, exactly. we'll, we'll catch up. Yes, yes, let's do that. <laughs> no, but we we definitely it's it's one of the films that I would like to visit for sure uh, on the Movie Bite podcast. Um, yeah, so I yeah I uh, I'm cautiously optimistic and excited. Um, like I said, I I even though I didn't feel like his the second film, the first one that Paul Greengrass made was you know phenomenal it was fine and the first and the third were certainly fantastic i think the real problem that we have here is that uh what's his name matt damon is just kind of getting older and it's going to be hard to believe that he is going to uh use his action chops as well as he used to uh i mean i don't know you see these i don't want him to be another bruce willis who can just keep on you know keeping on and you know like the rock or something until he's 90 i I don't want that I, Mm. i i felt like matt damon's jason bourne to be true to the character, he, it necessitated that he be a younger character, that he was a younger, a younger, rebellious spy. He doesn't feel right to be an, an older, mature, rebellious spy. That sounds like a, it seems like a contradiction in terms. I yeah, know. I think I feel like I, it could I, work. Go ahead. I think it's a fair point, Joe. Uh, you know, the first Bourne movie came out in what two thousand five? At this point, two thousand two, um, twelve, fourteen. Oh, okay, so yeah, yeah, twelve years ago. This this will be. 13, 14 years after the original by the time this one comes out. And I, I, I don't know. Do you think they'll make that part of the story? Like come back, make it a few years later. Or do you think they'll try and pick up moderately soon after the last one? I, I, hope, mean, I, I hope that they do make it uh, a while after. Like it could even be almost a throwaway line. Like, uh, you know, he could just show up, you know, and, and one of the people that we, I, you know, I can't remember her name, but the, the woman he was in contact with in the third film, she could say, man, I haven't seen you in years or, or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And it could just be a throwaway line like that. But, you know, I think even the second film was supposed to have taken place like five years after the first one or something. Yeah, like it was that. a few years after. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I would like for that. I, I feel like it works better when you incorporate real time into your story like that. Yeah, that would be nice at least. And I, and like I said, I remember in an interview many years ago that Matt Damon said after Ultimatum, he didn't feel like he could withstand the physical pressure and the, just the physical uh, strain, the strenuous parts, as well as he used to. Mm. Like every time he felt like when those movies were done, that he was totally worn out. And uh, yeah, I can see that. He, he said he never wanted to go back to that kind of film, but. I guess he has a change of heart when like he's um, run out of the big millions in his back pocket and he's ready to replenish that, that endless supply of cash. Well, doesn't it remind <laughs> you a little bit when he says something like that of John Syracuse, who every single year since he's been writing the big OS 10 reviews has said, this is it. This is the last year. I can't do it again. It's too much. <laughs> I, I mean, really? I, I think that yeah, his oh, neuroses yeah. will never let him do that, but that's another podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like it's the sort of thing where when you get done with it, you're like, he's like, oh man, I can't ever do that again. I'm done with that. That was a good run, but I'm done, and I'm oh man, I'm so tired. And then like he's probably missing it at this point, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, wherever the story goes, I find comfort knowing that Paul Greengrass and uh, Matt Damon are both coming back. Now, if only we could get John Powell to come back to write the score again. Ooh, yeah. Please do. Yeah, I I would definitely be in favor of that. I I love. You need to be lobbying for that. Okay, I I will do what I can. I'll I, talk I, to I my people. The sc- I definitely love the score for the first film. He did the he did all three, didn't he? 
Yeah, he did all three of the originals. Yeah. I can't bring to mind anything specific about the other two at the moment, but I'm sure they were good. And I I have – the reason I can bring the other to mind is I have like the main theme in my soundtrack library. And of course the piano guys did a riff based on it, which was really good. So. What I always yes. liked about the Bourne soundtrack, though, was that it made like excellent harmony to the visual melody. And it was one of those soundtracks that you liked so much more when listening to it with the film than you did when you would actually pick up a copy. Like it was really well made music. Don't take me wrong. But it, I liked it either way. But clearly, what made it excel was that it was harmonious to the picture, which was uncanny. I just haven't quite encountered that with many other films. And that really st- struck me. That it's it's like I said, it's like the harmony to the melody. Mm. Yeah, well, with with John Powell, he's certainly proven how diverse he is with his uh, composition, um, from everything to Kung Fu Panda to Rio to How to Train Your Dragon to the different settings <clears throat> of uh, of the Born trilogy. Um, he's he's proven that he's very capable and very adaptive. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of, of movies that are coming back, um, I think that we should talk about uh, – or franchises that are coming back, rather. I think that we should talk about one that's coming back that I have mixed feelings about. What about you guys? Do you have mixed feelings about this? Yes. So what we're talking no. about oh, – not you don't have mixed feelings. Well, well, let's find out what your actual feelings are then. Um, it's really bugging me that I can't get that thing to link in the show, in the show outline. Um, <laughs> what are you dancing with the cursor? There okay, so the toy, toy Story 4 – is set for June 16 of 2017, and John Lasseter is directing. This is according to Cover, uh, yes, Kevin Jagernoth over at the playlist, where he says during their earnings call with investors this afternoon, Disney CEO Bob Iger announced Toy Story 4 will arrive on June 16, 2017. But perhaps more intriguing is that John Lasseter, now chief creative officer at Pixar, Walt Disney Animation Studios and Disney Disney Toon Studios, as well as Walt Disney Imagineering, is going to direct. It will be his first movie since 2011's Cars 2 and will mark a return to the franchise after helming Toy Story and Toy Story 2. Lee Unkrich, Unkrich? I'm not sure he's in uh, who served in various capacities on earlier Toy Story, mo- Story movies and directed Toy Story Three. He's currently working at he's currently at work on the still on the still release date free Day of the Dead movie. That is a really confusing sentence to try to pronounce. Uh, even more interestingly, the studio has tapped Rashida Jones. Yes, that Rashida Jones, whatever that means, and Will uh, and Will McCormick, who co-wrote Celeste and Jesse Forever, to pen the screenplay based on the idea concocted by original Brain Trust members Laster, Unkrich, and Peter Doctor and Andrew Stanton. Discuss. Okay, so when Toy Story first came out, the original, I was three years old. When the second one came out, I was seven. When the third one came out, I was 18. It came out a month (laughs) after I graduated high school, Mm. right when Andy was graduating high school. I literally grew up with Andy from Toy Story. And so the the conclusion of Toy Story 3 really hit me pretty emotionally. I mean... it, it, that sounds strange to say. No, but, no, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it just lined up so perfectly with my life and I identified so strongly with it that it, it was perfect. It, I, they could not have made a better film, I don't think, as far as Toy Story 3 goes. And the first two are great too. Toy Story 4, what are they going to do? I mean, I, I, I can't find a story in my brain that would make this okay. Well, that's probably why you're not a filmmaker. Right. That's true. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, and this is where my conflicted feelings come from, Joe. I, I'm interested to hear what your non-conflicted feelings are in a moment. 
but but my conflicted feelings are are pretty much along those same lines which is uh i felt like toy story 3 was the perfect coda for that franchise like they put a nice little, to use my because i'm not very original i'm going to use what i used earlier they put a nice little bow on it they wrapped it up and they said here's your toy story franchise beginning middle and end uh, and this is the way it ends, and it's wonderful. It's emotionally impacting. I didn't grow up with the series uh, because I'm an old man, but uh, <laughs> I did enjoy every single film in the franchise. And I just, I just don't know, like you, Chad, like where they're going to go with this. How, how do you, how do you make a film to follow up on Toy Story three? Because as far as I'm concerned, it was every bit as good as the first Toy Story film, and that is unheard of. Like. Toy Story 2 was good, too. It was really good, and Toy Story 3 was as good as the original, and now you're going to follow up on that? Did you? No, just leave it alone. Okay, so that's my initial gut reaction. That said, <laughs> I am. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is uh, Pixar, and, and, and this is, um, uh, what's his name that we're talking about here? John Lasseter. John Lasseter. This is John Lasseter we're talking about, uh, and he's done some fantastic things, and, and then he also did Cars 2, which was not as fantastic, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm completely well, John Lasseter conflicted. was always better off playing with toys than he was with cars. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> I think that this movie is bound to be an economical success for Disney. And oh, for I, sure. I know that it is a completely separate issue from the other main issue of, is this going to be a good film? And I think that the, har- the older we get, the harder it is to appreciate a uh, fundamentally kid's story. Because if you go back to when you were a child, t- uh, uh, Chad, it was just much easier to gravitate to this kind of movie. Remember that adults who saw the original Toy Story were mostly fascinated with it for its animation style. Joe. Joe. What? My friend. No. What? And the, and the numer- I'm sorry, am I not allowed to share an opinion on <laughs> And the numerous podcast? references to The Shining. Uh, okay, <laughs> continue. I, I put a pin in this. I'm, we're coming back to it. Continue. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, my, my point is yes, yes, yes. Because... This was the, the, the best, this was the best concept that Pixar ever came up with. This was the best series that John Lasseter ever directed a part of. It had the best cast. It had the, essentially the best characters. It didn't always have the best animation, but usually it had the best stories. Toy Story is just chop full of potential. If you put this in the hands of bad filmmakers, it would still be harder to pull off a, a train wreck with the, the content here because you can do so much with toys and get away with it. We saw that with the Lego series, the, the Lego movie. How, you know, if you were to try and tell that story with clay animation or if you were to try and tell it with people dressing in costume at a cosplay event, it just wouldn't be nearly as entertaining as it is with real life realistic lego figures like all of a sudden it just becomes hysterical because of the context in, in, that it's in that story would not work for a lot of people except for the fact that it is done with legos and i think that that's one of the things that toy story has really going for it is because we appreciate seeing animals that behave like humans we appreciate inanimate objects that behave like humans and all of a sudden we give it a, a degree of creative license that we would not give to live action films and other kinds. So I think it's much harder to pull off inanimate objects like cars that come to life or bugs, but I think that it's much easier to do it with toys. And so for that reason, knowing that we have John Lasseter at the head, 
it's saying a lot because it would be so easy for John Lasseter to get cushy at Disney Studios and to hand this off to his you know apprentices or his understudies or something like that. Because if they wanted to just crank out yet another money-making opportunity, then they would have handed it off to a new guy. But they're handing it off to their most senior creative influencer. And that is saying a lot. He is technically the cream of the crop. He is their best master of Disney arts. So what can you do? Who can ask for anything more? I guess my concern... Uh, part of my concern is that they they're they're really starting to become this one note company. Pixar is, and they're going back to what started it all, which is Toy Story. And I feel like it's Toy Story was done. It was good. It had a good run, and it's over. And I don't want them to mess with it. And and what they're saying is we we can't come up with anything else. We can't come up with anything better. So we're going back to Toy Story, and we're going to bring John Lasseter back because we know we have a problem and we need to right the ship. And so uh, this is the way we're going to do it. So I'm concerned about that for Pixar. I mean, that said, you know, again, John, I'm, I am excited that John Lasseter's involved because look at what he's done since he's basically not been at Pixar, which is, you know, Wreck-It Ralph and, and some other things that were fantastic. Um, he was vicariously living out his direction of Toy Stories through Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> I suppose you could say that. By the way, has anybody heard anything about a Wreck-It Ralph sequel? I want it so bad. Oh, yeah, they're working on it, but I don't uh, know about a release date. Anyway, yeah. um, although I guess he did, he did not direct Wreck-It Ralph. I was looking that up. But he, he you could tell he was so involved, though. Oh, yeah. Um, Rich Moore directed Wreck-It Ralph. Um, I wanted to come back to what you said, Joe, where I said I was going to put a pin in it and come back. I'm serious okay. about that. Um, I disagree with you so much when you say that it's a, it's a movie that, that – it's a child's movie that, ha- that adults have a hard time identifying with. I feel like Toy Story and, – and, and this is what usually makes a good Pixar film good. They don't always accomplish it well. Uh, such as in Cars 2, but but um, in in most good Pixar films, you have the the film works on several levels. You've got the you've got the child story. Like my kids love Toy Story; they love all three Toy Story films. It's fantastic for them. But adults like them too. And I didn't. I was not enamored with Toy Story because of the graphics or because of the technical achievements or because of this or that. I liked Toy Story and and all three Toy Stories for the story. Because yeah. there's something there for adults and for children. Like Pixar knows how to craft that film that has multi layers of appeal that you know that you can dig into it on an entirely different level from your children. So that yeah, was well, that was that was a quibble I was taking with you, Joe. <laughs> all, all three films tackle very adult themes. Like the very first one tackles with coming to grips with who you are and your role, um, and then the second one dealing with loss and betrayal and the the instances of both Jesse and Woody. Um, and then the third one, growing up, letting go, being with your friends, all of that. I mean, th- those are very mature themes to tackle. And yes. I, I, I mean, to call it just a kid's movie. And we're not saying that's all you were saying, Joe. But um, I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is I mean, the Joe Smackdown. <laughs> those are just the things you have to consider. I mean, they're very adult themes. And Pixar tackles themes like this in most of their films. Well, I, I, I like if uh, if uh, what's his name Fizz were here right now. I know he would be saying that this is still a better romance than Twilight, but <laughs> it's uh, true. this is still a better adult film than Twilight. But that being said, I, I think that 
you're right, but at the same time, you're you're kind of wrong. It's it's right for the parents. It's right for the adults who really appreciate childish things. You're not going to see mm-hmm. any you know forty fifty year old you know uh, re, you know people without kids going to see this movie just because it's an awesome film, well produced and well told. I Anyone who wants to see this movie has <laughs> family ties. And and that's why. I mean, like, it's okay for parents to appreciate the stuff that their kids watch. I mean, let's be honest. There's a little bit of a kid in all of us. But it's the parents. It's the grandparents that would appreciate this. And first and foremost, parents are not toy collectors. In real life, we're not like the toy collector in the second film. Joe, do you and even live we were, in the real world? Yeah, no, I, I think <laughs> I do. Last I checked. Let me see. <laughs> okay, it says it right I know toy collectors my... who are adults. What are you talking about? But the, but there's a huge difference between the toy collector and the child who plays with toys. And I think that movie made that point for us. But anyway, I, and I, I know where you're coming from. I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying to the far other extreme, what I am saying is true, what thou sayest is not. What I'm saying that's is what I this is the other side of the coin. This is just the other side of the coin, people. I don't know. That's what I heard, Joe, is, is that you, you were saying you were right and, and, and we were wrong. Isn't that what you heard, Chad? Back me up here, <sighs> A little man. bit, Joe. <laughs> 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 all right that's fine i think we all got our, our our piece out there and i think we can agree that uh there is a lot there is an element of excitement for all of us some more than others um uh because it is toy story and it is john lassiter and it is pixar and i think we all hope that this is pixar's comeback like we haven't been super impressed lately uh yeah. and and we maybe we've been back on the upswing because you know uh monsters university was pretty good but we've we've lost a little faith in Pixar, and perhaps they can they can pull us pull out of the rut. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, I'll say what what makes me more excited uh, for this film than not is not Lasseter's involvement so much because the, the last two films he directed were the Cars films. Yeah. Um, the first Cars, but was more good. so, it was okay. Um, but more so the fact that this story came from Andrew Stanton and Lee Unkrich and the other Pixar members. Like I, I can't find the exact story right now, but they presented Lasseter with an idea. And he said, you know, this could work. Um, yeah. And that, that's what has me more excited than anything is that this is coming from the Pixar brain trust and not just John Lasseter playing with toys again. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that is something to be excited about. Anytime I hear, well, anytime I hear not, what I don't want to hear is this. We, the studio, came to John Laster and said, please bring us some more cash. Anytime I hear, <laughs> we had this really great idea and we pitched it because we were really excited about it. And the, the original creator of the thing said, man, that could really work. Like, that is exciting. I, I do find that sort of thing exciting. So that, that's where my mixed feeling aspect comes in. Because obviously yeah. Lasseter, I, I feel like Lasseter is a guy who's really true to his artistic sensibilities. And I, he saw something there that he wanted to, to do. So. Yeah. And I, I just want to say one more thing before we move on. What makes me know that this isn't necessarily just for the money, I don't think, is the fact that we've been seeing these characters on and off since Toy Story 3 in various oh, sure. short films yeah. and uh, uh, Pixar shorts before films and stuff like that. So, I mean, this isn't something that, I mean, they've been releasing Toy Story content. And so now we're going to get something a little bit meatier that hopefully uh, is creatively justified. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like Chad agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, guys. I got something for you here. The Force was asleep, but now it awakens. Shouldn't you be playing the Anakin theme? No. <laughs> no, not at all. The Skywalker theme? Uh, the Force theme. The I, Force theme. I prefer, this is, I prefer this one. 
<laughs> for the Imperial March, because I feel for like this, all Star this Wars is more, occasions, this is more fitting March. with with J.J. Abrams and his uh, dictatorial rule over the Star Wars franchise. Boom. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I would have applied that to Lucas any day. <laughs> Except that he's the one that gave us the silly Anakin theme stuff. Anyway, um, so the new the title of the new Star Wars film, guys, we finally have it. You know, things are starting to leak out about this film. The rumor is we're going to get a trailer this Christmas. But the title of the film is Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, Michael Rothman over at ABC News says that Star Wars Episode 7 the official, officially has a title. Disney revealed the news this afternoon and the highly anticipated uh, and the highly anticipated movie set for release on December 18 of 2015 will be called Star Wars The Force Awakens. So let's a just, long time ago, in yeah. a galaxy far, far away, Luke Skywalker awakens from his grandfather nap. So let's uh, let's discuss. Uh, nice this, James this Earl title. Jones impression there, Chad. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with the title. I mean, all jokes aside, I think it works perfectly fine. I I mean, we'll see what happens in context. But I I, I mean, I don't think I have a lot to say about it. I'm excited. I'm glad we have a title. It just means we're one step closer. Joe, I'm pretty happy with it. it it's it's not the worst title. It's not the best title. It is what it is. And you know yeah. what? For all we know, this is only a temporary ruse anyway. Because it doesn't include episode eight in it. It doesn't, you know, or seven. But that's a very... It just says The Force Awakens. I have some thoughts about that. One is that that's a very J.J. Abrams thing to do. Think about what he did to Star Trek. Uh, He removed all the cruft from the title. It was the first one was just called Star Trek. Um, And then the second one was called Star Trek Into Darkness. Like, and he didn't even put a colon in there. He didn't say it was Star Trek 12. Hence, people are so confused. They're calling this upcoming Star Trek film Star Trek 3. We've already had (laughs) Star Trek 3. This is Star Trek 13, you idiots. Uh, (laughs) I do appreciate the metaphor, though. If the metaphor stays true, like the Empire Strikes Back to the Return of the Jedi, if there is a true awakening of the Force, what on earth does that actually mean? It's not like revival is breaking out across the galaxy and Han Solo makes the altar call. I think what's more likely is there's going to be some sort of like actual presence of the force or like it does something that almost seems like it has a personality of its own, which would be very intriguing to say the least and something that we haven't seen in Star Wars because everything that we knew about the force might be shook up. And I would like to see that it had more to do with whatever it was Yoda was rattling on about in The Empire Strikes Back than, say, what Qui-Gon Jinn talked about when he said midichlorians. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if they if they mention midichlorians in this film, I'm out. I'm, I'm walking. <laughs> I, am, I am walking out of the theater. Does that mean that it only gets a star rating up to the point that it said midichlorians or that it indicates a star rating? No, no. If, if they mention midichlorians in this film – it gets zero stars. Like okay. it gets negative five stars. There, <laughs> I'm no. looking forward to that episode of Movie Bite. No, it's <laughs> going to be a very no. quick and to the point one. No many chlorines <laughs> ever. No more. I don't even want to hear that word again on this podcast ever. No more. Okay, we got that clear. Um, <clears throat> the many chlorines. <laughs> okay, we're done. We're, I'm dropping the mic, walking away. Um, so Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Not super keen on the title personally. I, I um. Hmm. I, I do think – I want to go back to something I, I did say, um, which is that I think there's a reason behind dropping the episode title. I think it's because Disney plans to release a lot of these things, and they plan to delve into side character films, and they plan to do a lot of things that were continuing with the episode nomenclature is not going to make a lot of sense. I don't. I haven't quite solidified how I feel about all that yet, but I feel like that's why they're doing it. And, and so that's why I don't think we're going to see an episode number on 
this, even though it will be universally understood to be episode seven, I think the episode paradigm is going away. Um, so that said, I, I have some trouble with the title itself of uh, the force awakens. It just seems really cheesy, like star Wars, the force awakens. I mean, it sounds like a B movie title. Think, think <laughs> about the strong, what's, what, what's the strongest title in the series? Probably the empire strikes back easily, easily. The empire strikes back. That is a strong title. It, it indicates that there's something going on here. Um, and, and, in the, uh, the the force awakens ooh the force awakens I, I, like i don't know it doesn't work for me i'm I, i'm not like i think we can agree that the phantom menace is the easily the, the worst title and the worst movie but the worst title in the franchise without a doubt um but this is like runner up as far as i'm concerned i don't know i i'm i know i'm being ultra nerd fanboy here and analyzing the title of an unreleased film but i yeah. just i'm not 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 jazzed <laughs> i don't know it sounds like the title for a teaser trailer. It doesn't sound like the movies. So you, you, you're going to go on record and say we're going to get a different title before this is all done. Star mm, Wars, Serpent, I'm not a betting man, Serpent Society. But... <laughs> no, I, I totally missed that. What was that? Star, Star Wars, Serpent Society. <laughs> okay. There we go. <laughs> we're going to have a crossover. It's going to be uh, Iron Man and Darth Vader face off. I am game. Bring it on. <laughs> the age of force. <laughs> What has happened to the show? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I also think that the logo really looks bad. Like, it just something about it looks too clean and just it looks very fake. And it looks like some of the new packaging on their toy products. It is what it is. It's, I mean, like they, they've tried to spin that logo a thousand ways. Joe, you're they, a graphic designer. I expect more hate from you. Uh, <laughs> I, if I could, I would, but it's not the worst. You got to go back and look at some of their ancient posters. They've tried to bury those, but the, man, some of those early Star Wars posters, they were some doozies. Mm. I, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. And, and, and here's the thing too, like um, return of the Jedi was revenge of the Jedi right up until like three weeks. Yes. Before the I release. actually have that poster. Yeah. And it is awesome. Yeah. I, I, it looks I like it's that, raining fire over Vader's helmet. Do you know the story behind that <laughs> is that, um, up until, um, up until a certain point, Star Trek two was called revenge of Khan and Lucas thought that, uh, you know what? Revenge of the Jedi sounds too close to that other franchise title. And, and let's just, let's back off of that and let them have it. And then they changed it to Rathacon. So nobody really got what they wanted. Um, <laughs> which Rathacon is a better title anyway. Uh, Revenge of the Jedi would have been a much better title than Return of the Jedi. But I don't know. It, it, I think Return of the Jedi probably fits better with the Jedi ideal because Jedi are not supposed to be out for revenge or whatever. And there wasn't revenge in the movie. I mean, what? That's true. Well, I mean, they did, you know, they did kill. I mean, Luke is a Jedi and he killed the emperor. So, you know, by that reckoning, we could rename this movie. The force stops sleeping. I mean, that, that, <laughs> it's just, you, you shouldn't play with titles like that and say that the words don't mean anything. You know, they're, they're not synonymous people. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what you mean, but, um, yeah, well, obviously return and revenge are not synonymous, but I, I don't know. I, I think revenge of the Jedi was a stronger title, but it probably return of the Jedi was a better title. I don't know. Ultimately, given the storyline. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's all I've got for Star Wars. Well, thank you, sir. We got, we got our weekly dose of Star Wars in. Okay. Okay. Uh, we are going to run long if we don't skip this chat. Are you going to be okay with that? That is fine with me. Okay. So let us get down to our review of Interstellar. 
what are you gonna do with it? I'm gonna give it something socially responsible to do. Can't we just let it go? This thing needs to learn how to adapt, Murph. Uh, gang, let's mask up. Like the rest of us. a treasure but it's been telling us to leave for a while now your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on earth so this is the trailer that was a clip from the trailer for uh interstellar which was released on november the 5th 2014 it had a budget of 165 million dollars and opening weekend it brought in 45 uh, 47.5 million domestically the worldwide gross is $137.8 million on its first week uh, weekend run, so I think it's going to make its money back and more. The um, critic consensus over at Rotten Tomatoes is that Interstellar presents more of, a, of the thrilling, thought-provoking, and visually resplendent filmmaking moviegoers have come to expect from writer-director Christopher Nolan, even if its intellectual reach somewhat exceeds its grasp. The director was, of course, Christopher Nolan, famed for uh, directing the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, writers uh, Jonathan Nolan, which is Christopher Nolan's brother, and Christopher Nolan, starring Matthew McConaughey, Mackenzie Foy, Jessica Chastain, Ellen Burstyn, Michael Caine, Anne Hathaway, John Lithgow, uh, Timothy Chalamet, Casey Affleck, Matt Damon, Bill Irwin, and Josh Stewart. Uh, the composer is one of your favorites, Chad, Hans Zimmer. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Um, they haven't released the score, so I haven't listened to it separately from the film. So I can only judge based on what I heard the only time I've seen the film. And that sounds something like this. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, it, it, the mix, it was so hard to decipher just how I felt about the, the sound because of the mix. Like it was terrible. Yeah. I'm going to take, I'm going to take issue with you though, Chad, that sounds a little bit more like inception. <laughs> it's true, it does. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, but you know that that aside i think a lot of the stuff that he did compose that i paid attention to was pretty good there's lots of really cool reactionary stuff like toward the beginning of the film matthew mcconaughey's character says um i won't always be here or something to that effect and immediately after he says that line there's this little piano um thing that happens in the distance and it's really cool like oh wow that maybe he's not going to be here forever and there was there were lots of little things like that throughout, and some of the themes I thought were really really strong. But um, just the louds were too loud a lot of the time, and that seems to be Hans Zimmer's fallback a lot of the time. Yeah, I I actually again I, I want to listen to the soundtrack on its own because of the sound mix coloring my perception. But I I don't feel like this is Hans Zimmer's strongest work for by no not at all the imagination no and, and that's funny because I've been hearing a lot of people rave about this score. And I thought it was fine, whatever. I think you know, it's as, better than the Man of Steel. Oh, for yeah, but but how much of how much of your view of the Man of Steel score is being colored by the movie itself? No, no, it, it's completely the score because the score in and of itself was a, was a huge letdown. For all that we knew, all these years with John Williams' score for Superman films, it, it was a huge yeah, letdown. It was, but to be, uh, to be fair, I, I it's would hard. Disagree, to, but that's it, just me. It's hard to follow in John Williams' footsteps on the Superman score because it's so iconic. Yeah. Perhaps, but the other thing too about Hans was that uh, I don't think that his career has been slumping, but for the last few soundtracks he's made over the last few years since the last Pirates film, I haven't been as much impressed. And I know he has like, well, he did all the Batman films and he's done some others that I've heard. And I usually love Zimmer's 
stuff, but I I'm, haven't been as impressed in general. I was pretty impressed with the Dark Knight Rises score, even though the film wasn't as good as the first two. I was really impressed with the score. Um, and his, his score for all the Batman films was fantastic. But I, I do feel like, to some extent, he's been coasting a little. I, I would agree with that general yeah. assessment. Yeah. And and that being said, though, I am with Chad. I think that this is still an excellent soundtrack, and I am glad that it is in Zimmer's um, collection. It's just yeah. not something that we will listen to all that much because when the lows are low, they are low. And then when the highs are high, they are bursting loud and high for a long time. Yeah, I'm real. I'm really excited to download the score next week when it's uh, released digitally. And um, you know, it's it's good. It's not the best space soundtrack uh, out there. In fact, I might even say that Stephen Price's uh, from Gravity, absolutely, um, just based on first listen, is better, just because it captures that sort of claustrophobia um, in the film and the the environment of space. Like, there's, there's no doubt space that- doesn't have a sound, obviously. But if it did, <laughs> it would be Stephen Price's score to Gravity. There's no doubt that Stephen Price's score is the like the ultimate score for a space movie. There is no yeah. doubt about that. No, so. of course not. So that's the composer uh, or the composition of the music for the film. Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story? Yes, let's. What we have here in the near future, Earth has been devastated by drought and famine, causing a scarcity in food and extreme changes in the climate. When humanity is facing extinction, a mysterious rip in the space-time continuum is discovered, giving mankind the opportunity to widen its lifespan. A group of explorers must travel beyond our solar system in search of a planet that can sustain life. The crew of the Endurance are required to think bigger and go further than any human in history as they embark on an interstellar voyage into the unknown. Coop, the pilot of the Endurance, must decide between seeing his children again and the future of the human race. Very epic, very big. That uh, Even that description oversells the movie. I don't think the film was trying to say that this is the biggest event in human history or anything, but it makes it sound like, you know, this was bigger than the crucifixion, the resurrection, the flood, you know, like anything that you can imagine. You don't feel like the movie feels like it's that big. I do. I feel like it definitely sells the point that this could be the end, the, the extinction of mankind. But even the wrath of Khan made me feel like it was the extinction of mankind. It, it just uh, it, it, space travel films that involve big clouds and crazy space things. They all sell that point. Yeah, the 2001 space odyssey made me feel like it was the end of all time. Well, obviously it was meant to be a big, huge epic. I feel like in some, in some way this is similar in that it tries to be as big, uh, ultimately in my opinion, succeeding more than 2001 a space odyssey, but now, what's really ironic about that, though, is that in the context with Interstellar, because the universe itself felt so huge in this movie, it actually made mankind a little dwarfed in comparison, just by the scale at which this epic is happening. Like, you felt like mankind and our problems were very small at times when they would show the great big open expanses of the universe or the galaxy and some uh, dead star, or they would show the surface level on a strange new world that you haven't seen 
ever. <laughs> and it looks like way better than anything you saw on the Star Trek TV show. <laughs> you know, it's, it was really impressive graphics and expanse and wow, the, 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 the world building, <laughs> the universe building. That's what I'm talking about, man. It was there. <laughs> it was definitely very ambitious. And in a lot of ways it succeeded. Um, I, I do yeah. think it was a little overly ambitious at times, but, but it, for the most part, I think it's ambition paid off and it, the world felt really big it felt huge in fact to some extent that's a detriment to the film but it feels like a, a huge like flyover of the universe and, and you don't really get down into the storytelling and that's where it's weak but when it does settle into that storytelling you have this huge backdrop of a of a universe behind it it's so expansive and it's uh it's pretty incredible um and and, and even you know i, I again I, i'm not analyzing this at all I, I saw some people you know talking about how from a scientific standpoint this and that and the other i'm not analyzing this on that level at all i'm analyzing it as a film and accepting the propositions it sets forth as scientific as science in that world that that it works right i really love the design of the of the black hole like uh and, and of the uh the wormhole i mean that, that was really fantastic designing there i thought yeah very well, interesting Supposedly that's pretty scientifically accurate too, because the, the story was based on a concept by a theoretical physicist named Kip Thorne. Right. Yes. Um, and I mean, she was the scientific consultant for this film. And so as much as possible, everything in this film is scientifically accurate, which is really cool. Something else along this line that was really fascinating to me was how relative time was. So they go down to the surface level of one planet and time is moving at what feels like a normal rate there. But as long as they're down there, uh, time on Earth and up in space is moving at about seven years per every hour down on the surface of the planet. Right. And that's not exactly time travel, but it was definitely something that was uh, going to bend your mind. And that was something that was really cleverly done so that I think that most of the audience would be sucked into that. Not everybody can be interested, invested in a time travel story, I don't think, because most people are just not into that kind of thing unless they are nerds and geeks and sci-fi fans. But here we're not saying that this is science fiction. We're saying that this is actually true. This actually happens in space. And because you back it with something that feels like science, I think that it pulls more people in. Yeah. It didn't get super science fictiony until close to the end. I mean, there was obviously yeah. science fiction involved, but it, most of it was grounded and, and, the the idea of the of the time bending of 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 the time shifting of the gravity affecting time that's a real uh that's a real thing um yeah. the relativity of time is is a very real thing and i don't think anybody's ever been able to prove it or test it at that level but it's certainly as far as we know what would happen in it, you know when you are in the gravity well of, or affected by um, you know gravity currents and things going on. I'm being super ultra scientific here. I know exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. So please, please critique me on every single thing that I'm saying. <laughs> scientific, please don't. Yes, um, spaceball. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, the, as far as I understand, that's actually very scientific and and very yeah. very accurate. And what was cool about it, I think, is the the whole relativity of time plot point. I mean, it provided some real strong opportunity for some emotional scenes, like the, the scene um, when he's watching the video messages. Oh, man, yes. uh, that that was heartbreaking. I mean, it, and it was it didn't feel contrived. It didn't feel like it was forced. I thought that it was very the the, the anticipation on the surface. Oh man, we're stuck. Time is racing by back home. We're pressed. I'm losing my family getting back and then seeing his children grow up in front of a TV monitor. I mean, that that's 
it's awful. That's, I mean, and it was such a powerful scene. That scene was one of two scenes that really affected me emotionally. Uh, yeah. and, and the biggest, uh, the biggest effect was he's, he's watching his son grow up and, you know, he's talking, you know, he's seeing the messages from his son over the years. Um, and, uh, then the screen goes black and you think, oh, it's over. And she never did get over it. And they, he waits just long. It's like, he's so masterful. This is where, this is where, uh, Christopher Nolan shines. You think it's over. And then it just, Jessica Chastain comes on the, on the monitor as, as, uh, Murph. And it's like, you just get these chills and, and I, I was all I could do to keep from balling. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think that's a good transition into talking about the cast a little bit. And, yeah, you know, yes. and I think number one, Matthew McConaughey was outstanding. He was good. He was very good for sure. I mean, I, 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 we're sort of in a McConaughey renaissance right now, which is really strange. Yes. Uh, because just a few <laughs> years ago, he was doing all these rom-coms and wasn't taken seriously as an actor. Yeah. But uh, Bernie and Dallas Buyers Club and Mud and now now this. I mean, he's really stepping into a great dramatic role, and I'm really impressed with it. Joe, you sent me a link earlier about uh, some of that with, with uh, Matthew McConaughey, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, I was just looking at that note again. This was from a magazine, and and basically he was interviewed, and he was talking about how his life has changed in recent years. He's got several children now. He's less of the bachelor. He is less of the playboy. He is trying to settle down and take his life a lot more seriously, and that has Mm -hmm. influenced the kinds of roles that he wants to be a part of, the films he wants to be a part of. And it even said in the interview, you know, he's taking his kids to church because that felt right to him when he was a child. He went to church. So that's the thing that he's taking, you know, make it says it's important. So you can tell that this guy has changed his um, interests in life dramatically. So, and I remember that McConaughey, the one that just was in all the romantic rom-coms and I guess perhaps was the turning point with uh, the Lincoln lawyer. I'm not sure if it was that one, but it was around then that was around 2011 and I really enjoyed that film. I thought he did an excellent character, one that I would like to see revisited again. And I don't know what the future of that is. But anyway, when it comes to McConaughey, I've always enjoyed him, but I really prefer the McConaughey that's a dad now. He's a much better man for it. He seems like a guy I'd want to hang out with. (laughs) Yeah, I think the the cast member that I was most impressed with was probably Mackenzie Foy uh, as young young Murph. She just, she nailed that role so much, so well. Um, And, and, you know the the emotional aspect was was spot on, and uh, you know the the running out to to say goodbye to her dad after it was too late, and the this the emotional impact that that had. I mean, she she managed that so well. And I think she's like what twelve or thirteen or something like that. Uh, yep. And she's she's already got a handle on this acting gig. I mean, this she's gonna she's gonna be something else if she doesn't turn out like a lot of other Hollywood young act, actresses and actors. Um, but yeah, she's she's uh, she's got a lot of talent there. Yeah, my favorite. Know, uh, in the f- those, those are the. Sorry, I just wanted no, to say, and then you can speak. Those are the two that I wrote down: were McConaughey and Mackenzie Foy. They they were the the two standout performers, in my opinion. Here, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree as well. Go ahead, go ahead, Joe. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, you. I mean, you've obviously got Michael Caine being Michael Caine and Anne Hathaway being Anne Hathaway. They're fine for all that they're worth, but uh, the, you're you're absolutely right, Chad. That Matthew McConaughey and Mackenzie Foy carry this movie, even yeah. though Mackenzie Foy is only in the like the first act. Uh, she she really sets the tone for for Jessica Chastain's character, who she was fine, um, you know, but but she would not have been the same. Like the, her character comes from Mackenzie Foy's 
setting of that character. Like everything that she Agreed. is as an adult comes from the young Murph. Um, so I, you know, it was, she would not have worked without Mackenzie Foy. So it's obvious that those two really carry this film. I don't know. I was, I was actually just going to say that. I, I mean, I, I totally agree about the performance of Mackenzie Foy. Is it Mackenzie? Yes. Hey, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, I was totally sold on her imp- uh, version of Murph. And then I was equally sold on Jessica Chastain's. I, I love that actress. I think that she's done really well in everything I've seen her in. And I don't think she, I think she's underused. I would like to see her in more things. I just don't think she, her golden opportunities have arisen yet. Well, Jessica Chastain was even underused in this film. I think, um, I felt like she yeah. could have, she could have been present more. I, I didn't think it was interesting. Like they really, uh, it's like, are, is Mackenzie Foy and Jessica, Jessica Chastain related? Like they have the same mouth or something. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, <laughs> but as a whole, you know, now that we are, we're talking about the ladies in this movie, uh, what would y'all say about the, the portrayal of the, uh, the females? I felt like Murph was given a lot of attention because she was playing this major role as, um, the, the close friend and um, you know, passionate daughter to her father, the the astronaut, the, the man who could save the world, and the person that she really wanted to just confide in. To um, she really wanted him to raise her up, and I really loved the dynamic of their relationship, which was very powerful and potent in the film. But at the same time, it felt like they just didn't let the character do very much. They didn't, and that was one of my. I actually had a whole section in my uh, review about this. Have you guys heard of the Bechdel test? No. yes um the bechdel test Good stuff chad for you uh, since you said no essentially um it is the idea or it's this test where um uh essentially the test asks if two women two women ever talk about to each other in the course of the film about something other than a man um and this film passes on a technicality but it, <laughs> in, in spirit it doesn't pass I'm sorry if I sound distracted. I caught a mistake that that I did not catch earlier in my review, and that, and that Joe, you did not either. <laughs> um, anyway, so so whoops, yeah. So yeah, so that that's the idea of the Bechdel test, and and it's not a perfect test because sometimes a, a film can pass that test in spirit, but not pass it technically. Um, if, if that makes any sense, like it's not a perfect test, but it's, it's a good thought exercise. Are your women yeah. actually doing anything in this film? And I, I'm so far from agreeing with the ideals of the person who came up with this test. It's not even funny, but I think it's a worthwhile thought experiment. And I feel like, especially with Anne Hathaway, this film utterly fails the spirit of that test. Like, because her whole shtick is she's out here because her dude is out on this planet and she's going to get there one way or another and she's going to get all emotional about it and she loses all objectivity. And what was she even doing on the mission? That was that was a frustration for me. So I, I, I totally agree. And it wasn't so much that they don't have uh, important responsibilities. It's just that on in, in, in the set of what they contribute to the actual story, they either cause problems or they didn't cause anything of, of import. So they have lots of responsibility because Murph is, winds up becoming the scientist. And so is, um, no, what's her name? And Hathaway's character. And they just, but they don't accomplish anything. They don't contribute very much. In fact, the, the robot TARS contributed a heck of a lot more. Certainly more than, Anne, than uh, Amelia Brand, which is who Anne Hathaway played. Uh, I, I completely agree. You can make the argument, and I, I would make the argument that Murph contributed more by finishing the thing that that Professor Brand, Michael Caine, couldn't, uh, and saved. She, basically, she saved humanity with the help of Cooper, her father, who sent her the message. Um, but it, it was weak. It was a little weak, for sure. 
But all things considered, the real sad thing about this film is that that was the least of its worries. Uh, do you want to get into the other likes before we move on? Well, yeah, I definitely do. Um, the film, as, as we mentioned, was was super epic, and I think that's to the film's advantage because this film was extremely hyped up. And I tried to to temper the hype in my head as I do, but it was really hard to because everybody's like so excited about this film, and even I'm going, yeah, it looks really good. Um, <laughs> and so I went in going, I, I don't expect it to be as 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 big and as majestic and as cool as everybody thinks it's going to be. And it really was like the scope of this film was 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 humongous, even even though I was expecting it to be, uh, which yeah. is which is unusual. The stakes were big. The the world was big. The world building was big. Um, and and even though the plot was uh, preposterous, frankly, uh, it was <laughs> it was made believable by the scope of the film. Um, it, it, the film is in earnest and we take it as such is what I wrote in my review. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was, uh, the major thing about this film is that it, 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 it's, it's fantastically majestic and huge. Uh, and, and in that way, I know that the, the, the comparison isn't super apt, but in that way, it reminded me of 2001, a space odyssey. Uh, I just wanted to briefly mention how much I like the design of the robots, uh, TARS and case and whatnot. Um, very creative. Uh, and I like their personalities. It was cool that they had personalities yeah. um, and that they were just there to help. Um, and that little aside, I think at the first two hours, 20 minutes of this film were pretty outstanding. I, I don't have a whole lot of complaints in regards to that. Um, I need a second viewing to be sure. Um, but everything except for the last 20 minutes, I would say was pretty outstanding and lived up to the hype that I saw. Yeah. Something that disappointed me about the first portion of the film was how little was actually accomplished on Earth. We have the whole human race at a standstill because they, most people don't even know that these astronauts are attempting to save the world. Everybody thinks that it all hinges on whether or not they can create food, if they can grow crops, and it doesn't look very um, you know, uh, hopeful at this point. And the whole world is just moving on. Everybody's packing their bags and getting into their cars and presumably uh, driving to wherever dust storms don't happen. I guess that's Antarctica and denying but, that we've ever been to the moon. Right. But it, it, that <laughs> yeah. doesn't make any sense. Like the whole world is just giving up and leaving their hometowns. That doesn't make any sense. Like we, I mean, I, I don't really want to see another disaster movie where chaos is breaking out like world war Z but I was hoping to see more of the gl global stakes. And that was one reason why I felt like the human race's plight was dwarfed in this film for me, because like the, the universe in this movie felt so big, but mankind felt so small because whenever they showed mankind, it was just the people in this, um, you know, shabby farm country. And there wasn't much to them. They didn't have much going for them. They were all getting sick. They were all making bad choices in school. They wind up being deceivers back at the, the home front. You know, you just don't know who to trust. There's not much going on in there. No, nobody has any answers. All the scientists are giving up. They don't know what to do. And so it was like we spent a lot of time watching the Ewoks do nothing before the Rebel Alliance showed up. Yeah, I, I didn't get into this a lot in my review, but it was one of the complaints that I had with this film is is that it it it, uh, it makes assumptions that you're just supposed to get on board with, and and one of one of those big assumptions, the biggest assumption is that 
for whatever reason, the earth is dying. Like there's no science given for why there's no, like we don't understand why and, and what's causing the dust storms. What's, I mean the, uh, you know, they mentioned that the earth's atmosphere had changed and was now not favorable. Um, but yet they're all still breathing. Like what's going on? Like something like we're just, we're just supposed to buy it. And, and I, I didn't quite buy it. I, I wasn't quite sold on it. Um, so I, I felt, I found that to be a frustration. Um, I, the, the smallest of mankind, I feel like, was on purpose, whether you like it or not. I mean, obviously, you didn't like it, um, but I felt like that was on purpose. The other thing, you know, the the, the business with just the whole first act, just uh, you're assuming you just, you know, it, it just it happened at some point And, you know, Earth is dying and we lost a lot of people and something happened. Well, and, you know, this also brings to mind Wally, how mankind was the cause for the world's problems. It wasn't just down on the ground. It was in the atmosphere. It was all over the streets. It was in the it was in the um, in the plains. It was even all over the, beyond the atmosphere, where we had cluttered up the, the space beyond with trashy satellites and yeah. broken equipment in any kind of way we possibly could. And and here, what we have is that mankind is being forced not because we wasted the world away, but by general appearances, it just looks like the world wasted away itself by natural causes. And that was a little different from what we see in most climate uh, catastrophe films of late, where it's world revolting against mankind. That that for itself was um, a welcome change of pace. I, I do appreciate that it didn't blame mankind for everything. Still proved that man was flawed. It still proved that man could do a lot of harm, but it didn't have to be that mankind was the problem in and of ourselves. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree. That was a little refreshing. I like that you mentioned Wally because it, it does have a sort of similar concept in that the Earth is dilapidated and humans need to go into space. But the I think the two approaches and the the messages behind the two stories are completely different. Whereas Wally was talking about how we need to take better care of the Earth that we have, uh, Interstellar is is more about how we need. I don't want to say we need, but how important space exploration is. And it, it's it's definitely, I think, almost a response to NASA's shutdown, the, the end of the space shuttle program and all of that that's happening uh, right and now. I have to agree with you completely because this film was, uh, started production shortly after, didn't it? I, uh, I think sure. it's... I think it's been a concept like this was originally brought to actually Steven Spielberg back right. in like 2006. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah this, he was this is direct. Right, it's, which would have been awesome to have a John Williams score, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> oh, so close. Yeah. Um, so, yes, they have similar concepts, but the, the, the message behind them both is very different. And where Wally did do a better job of explaining why the humans left Earth, I think that was sort of the point of the message, is they left because it was their fault. Whereas here, the message is, we need to look for other options, because right. this and, might be our future. It's not. It, Cooper I talked think, about this. Right. I don't yeah, I think it's when, necessary that we know why the Earth is dying for whatever reason. Whereas, I mean, I, I think it would be cool to know, but I don't think it's as important that we don't know. It was just yeah. a lot to ask us to buy. I, I, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Sorry. I finally got an opportunity to speak up <laughs> and I blew it. 
You did. <laughs> I, I, I knew you were trying to say something, and I'd accidentally talked over you, so I stopped and waited, and nothing Well, uh, what I was going to say, too, was that Cooper actually talks about this um, around the midpoint of the film when he was still on Earth, or I guess that wasn't quite the midpoint. He was still earlier. But he basically explained to his daughter or someone else how maybe it was his father, father-in-law. I don't know who that man was. Father-in-law. Yes. We'll call him Bob. John Lithgow. Thank you. He, he he basically was was saying that you know man was supposed to be explorers, not caretakers, and he was fed up with the farmer's life because they were caretakers that obviously didn't have could not take care of the world. So they may as well give up on that front and move on to exploration. And that was essentially uh, the the one note of the entire film. But it was okay. I mean, I, I know that sometimes there are times it's better to be exploring and better to be caretaking. But it did feel like you were throwing out the world-sized baby with the bathwater when you, you know you, you just want to leave the planet Earth and not bother like the people in Wally to try and reverse the situation. I mean, like they weren't trying to reverse the situation by planting crops. They were only trying to survive by planting crops. But what were you doing that caused the, the end of the world as you knew it? Or what was causing the end of the world as you knew it? Like, you know, you have all this science and you, you're trying to use it to flee the planet. Why, where was the group of people that were trying to reverse the situation? Yeah. And again, it just felt like this is a three-hour-long film that didn't show us half as much as I would have liked. <laughs> because it had a one-track mind. Let's see what Cooper's space team find and what they come away with. And that was okay. It was good story. But in a way, it would almost do better if this was a, t- a television s- a serial. Because then you could have developed Cooper as the main character. And over the course of season one, they could have gotten all the way across and over to planets and checked out different things and, fa- and found the different bad guys and unfolded different events that would take over, you know, the span of, you know, decades of time at a time while other events unfolded on earth. And you could see more of the happenings on earth. Uh, It would have been a golden opportunity for a good television show. I'm not saying that I'm opposed to this film. I'm just saying I would have, I think it would have been served better as a television program than as this feature film. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying for sure. I would have. Um, I, I would also like to say that as a whole, the visual effects artistry in this film is unparalleled because there were a lot of shots in space, and I'm like, "Whoa! How did they put that ship, the Endurance, out there flying by Saturn? And where was the director of cinematography? Oh, right, that, this is just special effects." But it yeah, was, I had a couple of those good. moments. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely some transcendent moments like that. Um, I, you know, I, we've kind of basically transitioned into our dislikes. I, I feel like this film suffers from a a super hyped up sense of self-importance. And I've, I've been feeling a little <laughs> bit this way about Christopher Nolan for a while. I feel yeah. like it thinks more highly of itself and of, of, of the film does and Christopher Nolan of the film than it ought to. It's a good film and it's epic, but it, it's almost like he feels like it's even more epic than it is. Which makes it feel really heavy and tedious sometimes. Uh, Dylan Thomas's poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into the Good Night, was recited at least four times. And it was really tedious by the time it, it was they were done with that, that shtick. Yeah. Um, the film just really suffers from that. There wasn't a single joke in this film that worked. I, I, I remember like one or two times when they tried to, like, to lighten the tone a little. And it was just so tedious and serious that it just really didn't work. Um, and, and for two hours and 49 minutes, that's a long time to ask us to go without a single joke or light moment. 
it, it was it was a little tedious in that way. I, I I thought that didn't bother me, and I thought that there were were a few moments of at least mild comedic relief. And so, I mean, I I was pretty engrossed the whole time. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I was too. But yeah. Well, I, I mean, I see what you're saying. I just didn't have the same problem. Um, but I, I totally agree with Nolan's self-importance. I mean, that, that's such, that's one of my big complaints for this is if I did have to nail something down, it's just that Nolan thinks himself so profound and he right. was trying to be profound. And we, we, there are other directors like this. What comes to mind more, most recently is, uh, Ron Howard's, um, Rush that came out yes, last year. Yes. And there were like, uh, driving in circles, searching for normality, or it, like these these stupid yes. quotes that that don't really mean anything. They just sound like they mean something, and that's sort of what Christopher Nolan is slowly becoming. And I'm not really a fan because he is a great filmmaker. He he knows how to make a film very well. Yes, but he's just taking it too far past that point and putting himself up on a pedestal at this well, point. When you have to try that hard to be profound, it it, it doesn't doesn't work. Um, there's, right. you know, there's the fake Yoda quote when, when force it, you must, then, you know, uh, something <laughs> it becomes, <laughs> right. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like that. Like stop trying so hard. You're trying so hard. You're about to burst a blood vessel. I can see the veins in your neck. Stop it. <laughs> right. And, and, <laughs> and, and just for the record, I'd say that Zimmer's score, a lot of it probably falls in that same category of self-importance, but that's, that's Hans Zimmer for you these days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would have to agree. Joe, are you going to counter or are you going to agree? I agree. No, I agree with what y'all are saying. I think that at, at the heart of it, though, uh, Christopher Nolan isn't just trying to be grandiose because he takes himself so um, so highly. I, I know that he probably does appreciate his reputation that precedes him. And at the same time, he's probably trying to counterbalance it with furthering his philosophy. I think that he is still studying philosophy at large. I don't think he has settled progressively over the course of his films. If you pay closely attention to how he expresses humanism and uh, neo-existentialism and others, <laughs> right. he, he thinks about these things uh, long and hard, and he tries to infuse them in his stories. But what's happening, too, is it, it appears to me that he's trying to um, create uh, what-if scenarios where he can eliminate certain ideas from his philosophical equations so that he can say, okay, that idea doesn't work. Let's move on to another one. Well, does this philosophy work? Well, no, it doesn't really work either. Okay, let's move on. And it seems like he does this with every one of his films and sometimes he goes in circles sometimes he contradicts himself sometimes he lets the bad guy look like the good guy but inevitably it seems like he's trying to be profound like old guys say and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't he's being experimental with a very big budget film is what he's doing yeah, I would have to agree with that. And and you mentioned the humanism and the neo-existentialism. I, I don't know as much about neo-existentialism. I'm sure if Michael Minkoff were here, he could talk on your level. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, humanism, I can completely agree with. In fact, I... Um, I, I, it was one of the things I noticed very keenly, and, and 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 one of the reasons I felt like the end of the film was a bit of a letdown. Although it's not unexpected, given Nolan's uh, past performance. Um, but basically his message um, – and, and this will be spoilery probably if, if you haven't seen the film yet, so go watch it. Um, but, but basically the message in the end of the film is we are our own gods. Like we – we our future us is what has sent us this message. 
and yeah. and they've communicated with us and they we've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we we are god we are the the um the spe- like like the indication is that anything that seems like a higher power is just what we've become it's us we are the higher power we are the god and that was that was very troubling to me obviously as a christian you know uh, but it, it's just – it was troubling to me on multiple levels, um, and, and it just didn't really work. That that's I think that's where the end of this film really fell apart. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't have – I agree with the problem of uh, us being our own gods. Um, so this is separate from that. Um, the whole rush to the conclusion, I would say, like – all of a sudden, we, we've had this long, drawn-out space exploration, which has been really cool and fascinating and engrossing. And then all of a sudden, we get to this part where he's sucked into a black hole, and everything that was so grounded just becomes, wait, wait, what? What? What's happening? What? What? And it, I don't, I don't want to quite call it Deus Ex Machina, but it almost feels like that. Like, oh, it's, it's close. I, I was your ghost. Got yeah. it. Okay. Cool. No, Whatever. I, I would, I would almost go as far as to say Deus Ex Machina. Um, probably. It's, it's it's a little hard. It, it, it's mind bending enough the the whole premise and everything that it's hard to to really nail it down. But I, I would I would get there. I could certainly get there. Um, did you did you read my review, Chad? No, I haven't read it yet because I wanted to write down my own opinions first. But okay, I see. Well, uh, one of the things I talked about is this tonal shift problem, and I mentioned that there. Uh, I said that it feels like at least two distinct films happened in, in this film, possibly three. And this would be where that third one would come in is where you start rushing to the conclusion. Um, I, I don't feel like it was a too big of a jump, but it, that's and that's why I said possibly three. But it was a little bit of a jump where all of a sudden we are driving to the conclusion. Like you can tell a kind of a shift in tone, although I don't think it's that bad. Like it did start to pick up speed. It's like it, it was like a snowball that just kept building. And then all of a sudden there was a few extra pounds on the snowball than you were expecting. Um, it, but it, it definitely shifted uh, when, when we got to that point. Um, what? Well, I- as you mentioned earlier, there were elements of sci- sci-fi sort of scattered throughout this film, but at no point did it feel like a sci-fi movie to me until the last 20 minutes. So and we're it in just the felt so gravity? out of place. Yeah, yeah that, it was so weird. It was interesting that just um, a week or so ago on Mike's uh, podcast on the Real World Theology, he had a piece where he was talking on a uh, forum discussion about horror films. And he brought up how spirituality is often explored in horror films. They bring up um, demonic possession and ghosts. But uh, anything to do with the supernatural realm doesn't have space in sci-fi films these days. And if you look at television shows and movies, it's generally true. They just they don't allow films to cross that bridge. You're not going to have uh, space for the supernatural as well as the sciencey stuff. You know, let's face it though. Uh, science fiction really is fantasy when it comes oh, right yeah. down to it. Too many of the things that they introduce in science fiction are more fantastic than they are scientific. Absolutely. We, we, they easily hold the guise of being scientific because you know, they have scientists on their shows or their movies and it's made with technology. Technology makes it possible, but technology has just replaced the unicorns and the magic ones. You know, that's really what's happened. Um, and 
if you take a step back and look at it at every turn, science fiction avoids allowing supernatural things, eternity, um, uh, even, even the dark side of things, you know, there's not space for the devil monsters and the like that have a supernatural quality to them or magic. Everything has to be explained away with science. Joss Whedon is doing this in the Avengers. So what's interesting about this is that in this film, it looked like Nolan was toying with the idea of introducing a poltergeist or some kind of being on the other side, perhaps maybe eternal. Who knows? Who knew exactly what? But that was what it suggested. And then he Murph went and explained believes it all. in a poltergeist, huh? And then he and then he went and explained it all. Exactly. Yeah. But it was like it was even it was dumbfoundingly annoying the way that he brought it up in the movie because. Early on, Murphy wants to believe in the poltergeist, but she wants to back it with science. She wants to find some sort of evidence for it. And then Dad Cooper, for just a moment, actually like follows the trail of the poltergeist, but for no really good reason. He's just taking shots in the dark, and he, he wants to see what this is about in her bedroom. And then, and then later, they forget all about it. And then later on, even late in the film, it all comes back around as... Well, really, there weren't ghosts. There weren't other beings. There weren't any other people out in space. There are no aliens. There is no supernatural force. It's all us, past, present, and future. Yep. Uh, that blew my mind, but in a bad way. <laughs> yes. It, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, didn't you find? A, I mean, didn't you find that climactic scene in the uh, in the gravity chamber thing like ultra bad, ultra poorly written? Like, yes. like the dialogue in that scene is yes, horrendous. It was. And it's it like, was awkward. It had to explain itself too much. Here? The robot added nothing to it. Cooper was resolving everything out loud, and he had not done that for the rest of the film. He was talking yeah. to himself, basically. Well, and jumping to conclusions, like like because there was no way we could get there, and there's no way he can get there except to just jump to that conclusion and tell us that he jumped to that conclusion. And then Jessica Chastain's Murph jumps to a conclusion. Oh, it's dad. Dad's leaving right. me these messages. <laughs> and you're like... I, I literally, I was like, what just happened? How did you get there? I, yeah, you, I was, you're standing here watching the books fall off the thing, and you got to that conclusion. Like, how? That's, you're asking me to buy this thing, and I'm not buying it. You're <laughs> selling it, and I'm not buying it. Sorry, yeah. not happening. <laughs> For most of that whole scene, I was staring in shock at the, at the theater screen. Yeah, this is not the Christopher it, Nolan I would have expected. But Like, no. who wrote that? But he loves his big twists. He loves to catch people off <laughs> guard. He did this in The Prestige. Inception, but I know. don't remember. I, I haven't seen all the Christopher Nolan Memento. films that I'd like to see, but I, I don't remember a scene ever with so much expositional dump, like just dumping all this stuff on you and expecting you to accept it. Right. The twist was huge, but it was the exposition that ruined it. it yeah, completely and totally. Um, I, I needed a lot less exposition and a lot more show and tell. Yeah. And even so, like, I, I feel like the twist was too much. Um, I don't know how else you could have ended it. Um, but yeah, that's the same dilemma I'm at too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not the, I, I can point out the problems. I don't have the solutions. Um, right. <laughs> and because, because of this whole anti-gravity chamber or what I don't, whatever, um, the emotional conclusion wasn't as emotional for me, like, like the goodbye and in all that stuff that happened post, uh, returning to reality. Um, it just, it didn't carry as much weight as it could have if there had been some sort of better ending that that I can't think of, but I wish Nolan had. Yeah, it was it was profoundly disappointing. I would say. 
because even even though uh, again I I didn't mention this at the beginning I, I should have because I mentioned it in the beginning of my review um I, I think Christopher Nolan's a tad overrated um and and what I mean by that I I went back and forth with Ben Kaiser on this a little bit um and and he would disagree with my definition of overrated but what I mean by overrated is everyone rates him highly and I feel like that that they're rating him higher than he should be in my estimation therefore I consider him to be overrated. Um, he's fine. He's great. In fact, his, his vision for Batman begins and the dark Knight were fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I love those films, but then, you know, there's the dark Knight rises and there's inception, which I also think is highly overrated. It's a fine film, but it's not the majestic, fantastic mind bending film that everybody says it is. It's, it's fine, but it's not, you know, like this thing. Um, so that's what I mean by that. And, and I feel the same thing here where he wants it to be this overarching thing, and in order to get us there, he does this expositional dump that just doesn't work. So uh, it's well, it was profoundly disappointing. I don't think that we can uh, exactly critique Christopher Nolan's career just yet, though, because there are so many other factors at play. We have well, several different production studios. We have his his brother, who is the co-screenwriter on the these films and perhaps at times the, a lot of the story is led by the brother we don't really know to what extent and i know he his wife plays a significant role as a producer as well uh christopher nolan also has his uh business life uh you know uh so but, but, torn but, in separate I, directions I, I because now though, he is playing the producer of things like the man of steel franchise he's executive producing that and he's not really that involved he's a consultant um, I want to ask you though, what do you mean we can't uh, critique his career? We can certainly critique his career up to this point. It's not to say I, what that I mean his, is it, we can, we should not draw conclusions just yet. It's not like he is but a can, has been. Can, He's not no, in that no, Shyamalan yet. But I can. Uh, well, I don't even think we can say that about M. Night Shyamalan yet. I mean, he, he's had some very bad films. <laughs> oh, no, films. We, can, we can with Shyamalan. He's we, a done deal. We can, only, <laughs> we can only judge up to the point that we know. And at this point, I'm saying he's overrated. He's done some really good things, but he's also done some things that were meh. Um, and so that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he can't have this amazing, another fantastic, you know, franchise beginning, uh, mind-blowing Batman Begins again. He can certainly do that. I'm, but all I'm saying is, up to this point, he's done it twice for me, and I wish he'd do it again, and he hasn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't quite agree with your opinion of Inception, TJ. I think I like it a little bit more than you. I, I don't know, you know do. if I could. I don't. I don't know if I could assign a number rating just now. Um, but I do like it quite a bit. And you know, I haven't really been super disappointed by Christopher Nolan before. Um, even Dark Knight Rises, while it wasn't as good as it could have been, I thought it was a pretty fitting conclusion for the most part. It worked, yeah. And I, and, I, and I and I wasn't very disappointed in it. But this, I think, is the first time I've been disappointed uh, in a Christopher Nolan movie that I've seen. I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen most. And this was just a bit disappointing in the ending. And other, every other respect, the first two and a half hours or whatever it was, I thought were pretty fantastic. I, I personally want to touch on uh, two more things, and I'm sure you guys have some other things. Um, and that is, I've, I've alluded to it, I've mentioned it, um, the, the whole distinct films thing. The, 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 I talked about the possibility of this distinct ending thing that felt like a separate film. What really struck me is like the tonal shift between Acts 1 and 2, where Act 1 is grounded on Earth, uh, very dull and and slow, and there's this dust everywhere, and very gritty and realistic. Um, and then all of a sudden, we blast off into space, and it feels like an entirely, a completely different film. 
I just like how why why did it feel like such a different film? And you know, like what happened there? I, I don't know that 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 tonal shift really just didn't work for me. Where we're in this disaster flick and the earth is falling apart, the crops are dying and they're being destroyed, and the food is running out, and the people are stupid and. And they don't want <laughs> solutions to problems, and it's all gritty and grounded. And then Act Two is an epic space opera uh, that occasionally cuts back to the old tone to see what's going on down on Earth. It, it was just very strange tonally that way. Yeah, I, th- I, was, I think uh, I agree with you. Go ahead. I, for the most part, I know that there was a, a significant tonal difference. It was it was sort of like the two thousand one Space Odyssey at, in parts, and then other parts felt like you know Clark Kent growing up in Kansas. Yes, yes. But for the most part, I know several films that have tried to pull this off, and sometimes this style approach, it seems to bother some people while it doesn't bother other people in the audience. And this is one of those techniques that doesn't really phase me. Uh, I've, I I can't th- think of any films where when you, you cr- establish your setting in one place and then you moved on to another that it actually bothered me. But I know that this is this – is, a matter of taste more so than I think of like a concern of film craft, because it is true that there's parts of our world that are covered in ice and snow and penguins. And then there's other parts of our world that are covered in, you know, cornfields and very dull moments where, you know, farmers have to sit on the front porch and drink beer. Joe Darnell, graphic designer. Let me put this in terms. I think that you will be able to understand and identify. With. <laughs> um, this would be as if you went to intentionalsensibility.com and the homepage was this very stark, um, y- you know, very minimal design. Uh, and it, it, it was kind of st- had this star field in the, in the background at the, in the header as it does. And, and it, it was, sounds glorious. And, and it, it's wonderful. And then you click onto an interior page and it's this busy, gritty design with dust sort of strict streaks all through the background. And, and it's got this scratches and, and it's just dirty and gritty. And, 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 and it's the same website though. And you're like, well, what happened? Where did I go? Am I even on the same website? That's what this film feels like to me. If it ever happens, I'll assume that you sabotaged my website, TJ. <laughs> well, now you know who did who would who do it. But that, no, no, to me, that's what it is. It's like it is well and good, as you say. Different parts of Earth have different climates. You you would go to the North Pole and you would expect to find ice there. When you come to, uh, you know, Tennessee, you expect there to be mild winters and and hot summers and. But but what in so what I'm saying it's it's well and good for different films to have these different things. You've got this film over here, Joss Whedon makes it's very pithy and and it's got this um this humor to it. And you've got this film over here that Christopher Nolan makes, and you expect it to be this one way. But what I'm arguing is that these have crossed, and we've brought the North Pole to Tennessee, and you go over to the east side of Nashville, and the North Pole is over here, and over on the west side of Nashville, uh, you, you've brought South America up or something. And, and that's what I'm arguing, that, that these the, the film mixed its styles a little bit. TJ, I think the only thing I, – I, I agree with you. The only thing that bothered me about this tonal shift for me, though, was the initial jolt when it changed. And yes. I would argue that that was um, – when they got to the facility, when they got to NASA the first time. And it was just like, wait, oh, okay. Just because I showed up now I'm going into space. Okay, cool. And now we're in space. Got it. Yeah. It was very quick. It was, it was that initial jolt right there that sort of bothered me a little bit. I remember thinking that in the theater, but once we got into the second tone or or whatever you want to call it, uh, I didn't, 
mind it. It was just the jolt that sort of threw well, me no, off guard. It, it, certainly. It, it, it's the fact that these both exist in the same movie. I, I may have enjoyed the second movie, if you want to call it that, or the second act. I may have enjoyed that better. Like, that was yeah. what I came to see Interstellar for. Right. Um, I, I'm just saying, like, pick your tone, find your find your movie, and stick to it. That, that That's what I'm saying. That's fair. You know, I, I, I like different varying types of design, but I don't want to mix them on the same website. I want one website to be a specific style, and then I'll use other style techniques on this other website because that, that's the language I know how to use. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, And then the one other thing that was a huge – in fact, it's so huge. We'll probably kind of end on this. So if you guys have anything else you want to talk about, let's do that. Uh, I'm okay, I think. I think I've mentioned everything that I had an issue with. The the one last thing I wanted to add, TJ, was that one of the problems for me, and really the overarching one, is the sum of its parts problem. I I do enjoy these actors very much. I do enjoy the direction style from Christopher Nolan, apart from his uh, deeply seated worldview uh, ideas in the various parts of dialogue. Right. But when it comes down, right down to it, this film as a whole, it just wasn't a very entertaining one. And I think that what I mean by that is, like you said, there wasn't a right balance of parts that make it serious and lighthearted, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, giving and forgiving. And because of that, because it was usually playing up like the darkness and the sobriety of the situation and the bleakness of their situation, and it never let up. And then when it did let up, it gave you this absolutely outlandish form of uh, of a solution that just mm-hmm. came out of left field yeah. it was a, a disappointment to the point that it was just just downright unentertaining so what happened was people leaving the theater that i was in nobody seemed amused nobody was happy nobody had the look on their face of wow that was awesome so glad i saw that glad i spent my ten dollars this weekend nobody had that look about it they all looked like well what did i just see where am I going now? Yeah. I don't know what's left in this world. I don't know what matters. Like, <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. People just didn't look like they had watched an exciting Christopher Nolan film. And well, that to be was fair, something that bummed me out. To be fair, I probably walked out looking like one of those people, but it was only because of the la- the, the the closing moments of the film. Yeah, um, yeah. I think if it had ended 20 minutes earlier or had uh, wrapped it up better in uh, a better way, then I would have walked out very happy. I enjoyed like legitimately enjoyed most of this film. All right, guys, there's an elephant in the room here. We haven't discussed yet. Okay. Um, I don't remember any elephants in this movie, TJ. The The space elephants, the elephant planet. Yeah. You know, the the black hole is one of its nostrils. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Uh, (laughs) I won't do that again. I promise. (laughs) Um, So, so the, the element that I'm talking about here is the sound mix. And I've I've gone back and forth on this a lot. So so the the issue for me, and it made it so unenjoyable. It was it was very unenjoyable at times. Um, I've never I've never had this experience in the theater before. I've experienced it with home videos where where the the mix was obviously for a theater in perfect conditions, and they didn't remix it for home video like they should have, and so that the mix was just off. You couldn't hear it well on your on your home speakers and and stuff like that. Well, I've never experienced this phenomenon in in the in the theater before, but there were parts of the film where I couldn't hear the dialogue, important dialogue, because the music was so overpowering and the emotional music was swelling and 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 taking you somewhere, but you didn't know where because you couldn't hear the important things they were saying. 
it was really frustrating. <laughs> there was there was a specific scene on Michael Caine, uh, uh, Professor Brand's deathbed, uh, where he was saying things that were important to the plot, and you could kind of later decipher what he must have said based on what was happening. But it was important stuff that I missed, and 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 the I went to see it with a friend, and he he actually asked me after the film, "Could you understand?" I couldn't understand that, and I said, "No, I couldn't <laughs> understand any of that." And that was a really frustrating experience. There were times when the base of the engines was so overpowering that you couldn't hear what was going on in the cockpit, and what they were saying was important, but you couldn't hear it. And I've gone back and forth on this issue in my mind, trying to figure out, okay, was this a, a, an accident that happened? Well, no, it, it, I, I think that I'm saying no because it can't really be. How does that film get through all the quality checks that it has to go through and somebody not say, uh, guys, we can't – here, I mean, and so what had to happen is Nolan would say, no, that's intentional. It's very intentional. We want the audience to experience X. That's the only way that film could get through the quality checks like this. Um, so I, I think that he was going for something that was an utter failure. He was trying to make us feel like we were there, and it didn't work. It, it really just made me frustrated. I think the the truth here is that uh, Christopher Nolan just has an affinity for difficult to understand dialogue. I mean, in Batman Begins, you had the initial Christopher or Christian Bale Batman voice. In the second film, you had uh, I don't remember what we had. The third film, we had Bane. Um, he just likes making things hard to understand. I don't know what you're talking about. I can understand <laughs> Bane just fine. And <laughs> in, in, in Inception, we had Mr. Saito, uh, who speaks English difficultly. Yeah, that's true. Was that, was that, you talking about Ken Watanabe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who I like yeah, yeah. a lot. But yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, just joking around, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of a tradition with Nolan films. We, we <laughs> find certain characters difficult to understand. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a problem. And, and it, I think it's particularly bad, though, with this film. Joe, did yeah. you did you experience this phenomenon? I experienced it a little bit, TJ. I didn't think that the dialogue was too quiet, but I definitely found the music to be too loud. And it didn't happen too often over top of the dialogue, but I definitely noticed a couple of scenes where it was difficult, especially the key one you mentioned with Michael Payne. Uh, Kane. Michael uh, Payne. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a pain to listen to his Kane. No, okay, he was dying. <laughs> what is happening? Anyway. <laughs> and yes, he, it was it was torturous just to try and figure out what was being said because that was a major turning point, one of the earliest turning points in the film. And my brother looked to me like, "What just happened?" And I said, "I think he said." Yeah, well, exactly. I think at least on some small level, it might be a, a theater uh, to theater issue because I do have a couple of people I follow on Twitter who said they've they've seen it multiple times in different theaters in different settings, and in one screening they understood everything just fine, and the other the sound mixing was an issue. So I don't know if it's an issue of speaker choice or volume settings or what, um, but certainly I think it, it if if it's happening at all, it's a problem. Well, I think it can be. It can depend on the speakers and the setup. Um, obviously, you've gonna you're gonna have to deal with EQ. Um, y- you know, some some speakers and some setups may emphasize higher end sounds more than lower end, and so you're gonna hear the dialogue better because you're not hearing the bass rumble, for instance. Although that's with the emotional high pitched music, that's more of a problem. But when you're talking about the the rumbly scenes, you may not get that as much in some theaters as others. Uh, and so right. if you're in a newer theater, as I was, you're probably gonna hear a lot more of that bassiness. Uh, because the mix is out of proportion and the the um, the EQ, the way it's EQ'd and the speakers are sp- spitting out that bass is really going to overpower. 
So it certainly yeah. can be a theater to theater thing, but in general, I would say that the mix was mixed poorly. Which, which for a, a, a production this big is very strange. But yeah. it, so, so that's why I'm saying it had to have been a choice. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was frustrating. That's all I got, guys. That's uh, that's all I have, guys. I'm gonna use proper English. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> the, the review was only as long as the movie. Yeah. No. It it it, it was. <laughs> yeah, um, I appreciate you proofreading my review, Joe. It, it was like th- three thousand something words. Um, oh, you're more than welcome. I know that I've wrote, written several lengthy ones, so this is nothing. So let's let's get into our final recommendations here before we sign off. Um, and uh, Chad, you uh, you're basically a guest now. It's sad, but you're basically That's, a guest. So that is sad. Why don't you why don't you kick off our our? He's a ender. veteran. Yeah, he's he, a veteran. He That's retired. what it is. Tired. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's not go there. Um, he listens so, <laughs> to movie bite on weekdays, you know, on his bench with a beer. He just goes back through all the old ones, and ah, those were the days. <laughs> so, Chad, tell us, um, tell us a little bit about uh, your recommendation on this film and your star rating. Okay, I want to kickstart by saying that this film is absolutely worth worth seeing. I think we can all agree this is yes. absolutely worth seeing Agreed. in theaters right now. Yep. Go do it. But I've already expressed my huge disappointment in the ending, and you know. I need to I need to see this film again. I need to wrap my mind around how I really feel about the ending and all of its little the little aspects about it. And right now I don't have an entirely firm opinion on all of that, but for now I'm sitting at about a three and a half out of five, which is pretty good. I mean Nolan has better films that I've seen. Um this this was still really good though. So Yeah, Joe? I'm going to give it four out of five stars. Wow. And that's because I think that the film craft was uh, upheld so highly. I, I think that this film will grow on me actually with more viewings because my expectations have changed. I really enjoyed Cooper as a character. I, I actually enjoyed most of the astronauts. Murph was a very complex female character starting out young, turning out older to do some very inter- interesting things my biggest disappointment was actually very near the very end of the film, which we we didn't talk very much about. But for what it is worth, see this film. If you have any questions about it, if you're just not interested in space films, though, you might you know want to set it out. Unless you have family and friends and boyfriends that have to see it, and you got to see it with them. But if you if you're going to see it, just be ready that. Uh, it it is long and it's not torturous like the the space odyssey, but it's it's great and <laughs> just have the remote handy to control the volume <laughs> all right and uh for me uh i would say uh three out of five stars so i'm going to be the lowest of all of you even so i do recommend that you see this film uh i mean i suppose like you say joe if you're not really into space epic films then maybe maybe don't see it but i would say it's it's an experience that you if you're into films at all you should probably see the film um, and if you listen to this podcast, you should see this film, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it, it, it was worth seeing. I'm not sorry that I saw it. And it, it's one of those films, despite my star rating, like it, this is the weird relationship we have with star ratings, right? My star rating is not as high as you would expect to get a recommendation from me to go see it. But but it's it's the sort of thing that makes you think. It, it it makes you think about it. like like I was my mind was I was really glad this is one of the few times that I actually got a friend to go see this film with me he was excited to go see it and we I, I he asked when are you going to see it and I said well, I'm going to see it Monday or I'm going to see it Saturday so can you wait till Monday and I'll go with you and I said oh sure that'd be great 
I'm really glad that he was driving home with me in the car because we discussed a lot of stuff and I was able to really process a lot of my thoughts about this film because my mind when I got out of the theater was just racing. Um, there's this whole Mobius strip effect, right, that, that happens with this film. Like the cause is the end and the end starts the beginning and, and all this stuff that just it, – it's really mind-bending and it's, it's wonderful. Um, so I, I definitely recommend seeing it, even though ultimately I was disappointed with a lot of the directions that Christopher Nolan went in with some of the stuff as we've talked about. Um, and it's not, it's not gravity, obviously, obviously gravity. I, I think I gave it four and a half stars. Do you remember Chad? Is that what I gave it? Uh, four and a half or five. I yeah, think. it wasn't five, uh, because okay, I, haven't then given, four and a half for I haven't sure. given a film five, uh, that's a new film since I've been doing movie bike. Um, so yeah, it, it's, um, it's not, the, it's not gravity, but it, in a way it's the same sort of thing where I say, go have the experience in the theater on the biggest screen that you can, because it is in some ways that sort of film. Um, so yeah, go see it. It's, it's worth seeing, prepare to have your mind bent, prepare to be disappointed by some things. Um, and it's an experience. It's a thing. And you should, you should see it. Does that, uh, does that sound fair? Yeah, it sounds fair great. Enough. All right. Well, next week, Joe and I are going to be reviewing Big Hero 6, and I'm hearing really good reports about that. It outdid uh, Interstellar this weekend, believe it or not. Insane. Uh, so um, it, I'm hearing really good reports about it. Uh, really excited. I hear John Lasseter was involved with that film in some capacity. Of course, it's a, a Disney joint Disney and Marvel production, which is uh, fun. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, really looking forward to that. Uh, Chad, you, uh, it was a joy to have you on this podcast. I want to, I want to have you on again sometime soon. So yeah, it was awesome to be back. Yeah. So I had uh, a great time. remind people, uh, where they can keep up with you and your work and your things that you do and all that stuff. Okay. Well, I haven't posted on my, my movie website, but you can check I've out noticed. some of my older stuff. Uh, if you'd like at chadlikesmovies.com. Um, my Twitter, which is the most up to date. If you want to follow me is, uh, twitter.com slash chadadada. C H A D A D A D A. Yes. It's been a while since I've done that. And then facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. Good. And Joe? Catch me on my website. Go to joedarnell.com or intentionalsensibility.com. That's one in the same site. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm always underscore Joe Darnell. And you can follow me uh, on, in the writing that I do and keep up with me on moviebyte.com. I, I wrote that big 3,000-word review that we kept mentioning, uh, over 3,000-word review of, of Interstellar at moviebyte.com. You can catch that there and all my other stuff. Uh, you can find me also on the Twitters at uh, TJ Draper Pro. And um, you can find the show notes for this particular episode of the Movie Byte podcast at moviebyte.com. That's M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E dot com slash M-B podcast slash 112. And that's where you'll find the show notes for this episode, put all the links to the stuff that we talked about, uh, that picture that I mentioned that Joe had sent me of Matthew McConaughey's Family Faith. I'm going to try to put that in the show notes as well. Uh, so all that stuff will be there. You can find all that good stuff there. And uh, that is it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. You guys rock that listen to this podcast. And uh, we thank you for listening. And we will speak to you again next week. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye.